Matthew 21, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. I remember the first time that I went up to Jerusalem. And and I, I can't explain this other than just to say there's a palpable intensity about the city of Jerusalem. If you've ever been there, you know that there's just there's something different about that city. Something different about going there. We, we, when we've gone to Israel, we start in Tel Aviv, go up to Caesarea by the sea, and then head on up into the, the Valley of Megiddo and make our way up to the Galilee. And the first part of the trip is there in the Galilee, and it's, it's rural and peaceful and calm. It's wonderful. It's a great place to, to land and to begin that journey in Israel. But invariably, as you make your way south, things begin to just feel intense. I, I had this burning excitement in me to see the holy city, to actually see where, where David reigned and Solomon reigned and where Jesus walked and was crucified and, and of course, resurrected. And I'll never forget emerging out of that tunnel. I believe it was Highway 1. I could be wrong, but coming out of the tunnel that went underneath the Mount of Olives... And as we swept around, looking off to the right, out of the tour bus windows to the Temple Mount. And seeing it, it was lit up by the city lights in the early evening. That The sun was setting on the other side. As the sun was going down, it was purple all through the sky. And it was an amazing sight, and something just jumped inside of me. But that whole experience, it wasn't just seeing it. There was an intensity there. Yerushalayim. The city of peace is what it means. And yet, it has historically been anything but a city of peace. It's been taken and conquered 37 or more times in its long history. It's an intense place. It's an ironical name for a city that historically has been such a a wild place to be. Spiritually, Jerusalem's most intense week in all of history began as a lone Galilean rode a donkey down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and up into the Holy City. That last week of Jesus' ministry before His crucifixion, the last week of His, of his teaching and His imploring people to understand and know who He was, the last-ditch effort of the Lord to capture the hearts and minds of the people of Israel, that, I believe, was the most intense week of Jerusalem's history. He rode that that donkey down the mountain. We we talked about that on Sunday morning. It It says in Matthew 21, verse 9, the crowds going ahead of Him and those following were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when He had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. That word seismic seismically stirred saying who is this and the crowds were saying again and again this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee when they say the prophet that title this is the prophet the same prophet about whom Moses spoke in the book of Deuteronomy the Lord will send a prophet from among your people so when the people said this is the prophet Jesus all indication there was they were beginning to understand they were beginning to sense at least the common people, that this Jesus was Mashiach, the Anointed One, the Savior sent to them from God. But what the crowds didn't know as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, but what Jesus Himself did know, was that this week was the run-up to the crucifixion. Put yourself in Jesus' sandals for a moment. What would that have been like? See, we don't know when we're going to die. We don't have that sensibility. Oh, the doctor may give six months or a year, and still we don't know. In fact, if the doctor gives you six months or a year, you still don't know. The Lord may come long before that. We don't know when that moment is going to come, when that second is going to occur. But Jesus knew. I thank God we don't know when we're going to die. Can you imagine? Rick, you're going to die in a car accident when you're 45 years old. You know, my 45th birthday, I would be freaked out. I don't know how people could handle life if we knew the precise moment when we were going to be taken. Jesus knew. Jesus enters the city of intensity with that intensity on His heart and on His mind. How did He face it? How did He deal with that? How could anyone? Jesus knew He was but a week from His death. 
Jesus knew the chief priests, the leaders, the elders of the people were gunning for Him. In that city, and He knew that was where it was going to happen, He knew He was the Passover Lamb, and Passover was but days away. How did He stay focused? John chapter 1, verse 17 tells us something of the nature of God. It tells us grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, I believe that's an overarching statement. That through the work of Jesus and the coming of Jesus into the world, grace and truth were realized. We finally get it. We finally get that God is a God of grace and that He speaks nothing but truth. But I think it's more personal than that as well. I think we realize grace and truth in the character and nature of Jesus. From Matthew 21 to the end of the chapter, we're into that last week. We watch Jesus now. He's going to deal with several things. Several challenges. In fact, they're going to come one after another after another. Some of them good challenges, healings. Some of them bad challenges, the the Pharisees getting all up in his face. But you know what? Whether it's a good challenge or a bad challenge, it's still stressful. You know that when things are going great and things are clicking, you still feel the same kind of stress, that energy that has to go out. Jesus is hitting this last week constantly with one thing after another, knowing His death is imminent. But in all of these things, I think you'll see grace and truth. Grace and truth. What was Jesus' immediate intention as He came into the city? What was His first order of business? Verse 12 tells us, after He rides that colt of the donkey down, it says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, before we talk about that, the first few words, Jesus entered the temple. When King Jesus came into Jerusalem, the first place He went was His Father's house. Now, I made a comparison on Sunday between King Jesus and King Solomon. When King Solomon rose to his throne, he didn't go to the temple. Well, the temple wasn't there. Hadn't been built yet. Remember, Solomon built the first temple and it was destroyed by Babylon. And then Herod, well, the second temple was built and then Herod came along and was refurbishing it by Jesus' day. But when Solomon came into Jerusalem, he didn't go to the tabernacle. He didn't go set up shop near the Ark of the Covenant. No, Solomon went by way of the Gihon Spring where he was anointed king. He went straight to the palace and there he took his rightful throne. Jesus, King Jesus, comes into Jerusalem and goes straight to the temple. Why? Because this is a spiritual kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus would say later to Pilate. It's not from here. My kingdom is from another place. It is greater than here. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And what He was inaugurating there was not the millennial kingdom, which He would set up on earth in times to come. But it was the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of heaven that we've talked about in previous weeks. That Jesus came to set up and so He goes straight to the temple. At Jesus' first coming, He would not sit on a throne. In a palace, He would hang on a cross. At His second coming, we will see Him ruling and reigning from Jerusalem and seated on the throne, but guess what? Not in a palace. In the Millennial Kingdom, the throne of Jesus will be in the temple and He will rule and reign from there. Zechariah 6.13 tells us it is He who will build the temple of the Lord and He who will bear the honor and sit and rule on His throne. Thus He will be a priest on His throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. What two offices? The office of king and the office of priest. The king was not allowed to be a priest, nor was a priest allowed to be a king. Those two offices, politics and religion, were kept separate because no man can handle it. But Jesus could, Jesus will, when He comes to rule and reign in His kingdom. He will do so perfectly. Now when Jesus came into the temple, it wasn't the council of peace that He was feeling. It was the course of passion. He saw the state of the temple court and Jesus is angered. He's angered by all that He sees. The selling and the buying. The money changers and those selling doves there in the temple. He sees all this. Now, now don't misunderstand what's going on here. Because if you visit Jerusalem, first thing that happens when you get off a tour bus is you're going to be manhandled a little bit by those who are selling their wares. There are going to be guys on the street trying to sell everything from hats, maps, posters, caps... Olive wood camels and micro SD cards because you need them for your camera and they sell them at jacked up prices. You'll find people trying to sell their words. Jesus didn't have a problem here though with tourism. 
It's not what angered him. It wasn't the selling of goods. It was the manipulation of people that was going on and the abuse of his father's house. Look at verse 12 again. He overturns the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who are selling doves, and he says to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. What's going on in here that got Jesus' ire up so intensely? A couple of problems. The first one is the dove dealers and the pigeon peddlers. Dove dealers and pigeon peddlers. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 7 It tells us if a person could not afford a lamb, that he should bring to the Lord his guilt offering for that in which he has sinned, two turtle doves or two young pigeons. You see, God made provision for the poor. Those who didn't make so much in Israel, when you come in to bring your offering to the Lord, you don't have to bring a lamb. That would be a little more expensive. God knew there would be people in Israel who couldn't afford that. So he said, okay, for you, a couple of turtle doves or a couple of pigeons will do. I will allow you to make that offering. And so the poor would would bring that with them, but these merchants were jacking up prices on the very people who couldn't afford to bring their own lands. They wouldn't let people bring in their own animals, bring in their own pigeons or doves. You had to buy it in the temple because we want to make sure that it's clean. And so they would sell them at greatly exaggerated prices. Jesus saw the manipulation of the poor going on in the temple courts, and it infuriated Him. Deuteronomy 15.7 The Lord said, If there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns, in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother. I believe it continues to be the responsibility of all believers not to close our hand to those people in need, but to have an open hand and to share what we have. To make matters worse, the people weren't allowed to use their own cash So even if you came with money to buy a dove or to buy a pigeon, you couldn't use the money that you brought. You had to have it changed. Money circulated in secular society was unacceptable in the temple. You had to use temple-sanctioned shekels. So the second problem is fraudulent fiscal exchange. Fraudulent exchange. We'll get out your money. We'll exchange it for you for a modest fee. But worse than that... All of this buying and selling and ripping off and manipulating the poor, all of this was happening in the temple courts, literally, specifically, the court of the Gentiles. Which means that religious sacrilege was occurring. What do you mean? The non-Jews were allowed in the court of the Gentiles. Non-Jewish people could walk around in the temple area and see what was going on. They could watch, they could observe worshippers coming in and out. People do that here, by the way. People will come to the bridge on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday night, maybe a non-believer, maybe someone who's just checking out Jesus, and you know the number one thing they're going to do? They're going to look at you. It's not going to be the message, the teaching. It's not going to be the worship that impresses people most. It's going to be the people walking around. How do they treat each other? Do they seem happy to be here? Are they friendly? Are they welcoming? Do they care for each other? It's kind of our court of the Gentiles. People will watch how you treat other Christians in the marketplace. Jesus said they're going to know you by your love. They're going to know you're my followers, my disciples, if you love each other. That's, that's the key. That's the sign. That's what will show people. But the, the Gentiles could come into the Gentile court, the court of the Gentiles, they could see all the scamming going on, and they could go, huh, I guess Jews aren't any different than the rest of us. I hate when people say that about Christianity. Now, Christians aren't any different than the rest of the world. It breaks my heart. Because we should be. In every way, we should be different. Well, no wonder Jesus was torqued. (laughs) He went nuts, right? I mean, He whipped up in a fury there. No one could get in His way. He's turning over tables and He's throwing out the money. He creates a whip, we're told, in in the other Gospels. He begins whipping and pushing animals out of there. He's just out of control. And rightly so. Yeah, go get him, Jesus. But he wasn't out of control. In fact, the first of several challenges he handles absolutely beautifully. If you want to note these, there will be five of them tonight. Number one, Jesus righteously harbored his anger. He righteously harbored his anger. What do you mean? I mean he kept it in the harbor. He didn't bust out. He didn't go crazy. He didn't go nuts. Though he had every right to, though he was very angry at what he saw, he did not do that. 
James chapter 1, verse 20 says, The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. But Jesus epitomizes righteous indignation. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't lose His head. His actions were measured and thought out. You might say, Rick, are you reading the same verse I am? Because I read here that Jesus went into the temple and drove out those who were buying and selling and overturned the tables of the money changers. I overturned a table once. On the third day of my honeymoon. It's kind of hard to think of overturning a a table without being out of control. You know, without being just really stirred up. I've matured a bit since then, by the way, so don't worry, I'm no longer a table turner. But Jesus overturns tables. And you're telling me now, Rick, that His anger was measured and composed? Absolutely that's what I'm saying. This is another great value we have of what's called the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three Gospels are called that because much of the information is very similar. John kind of stands alone. Though there are similar stories in John, it's the most different, written the latest, and it's unique in its character. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have great similarities. So they're called the Synoptic Gospels. Well, in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, we're told this interesting fact. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, He left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Mark tells us something that Matthew glosses over. And that's that Jesus went into the temple on the day of His triumphal entry, saw everything going on, took note of it, and left. He went back up the Mount of Olives, down to Bethany, where He probably stayed with Lazarus and Martha and Mary, prayed about, I'm assuming, considered His response, and came back the next day to cleanse the temple. With one verse, we realize how Jesus handled His anger. He slept on it. He took time to consider the right approach to what He saw going on. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Paul said, Be angry, but don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Paul gives two righteous approaches to dealing with anger. This is about as practical as it gets, gang, when you're talking about anger in our lives and getting upset and how do we handle those things. Paul says, number one, don't let anger cause you to sin. Anger itself is not a sin. It's how you respond when you're angry. Don't let your anger cause you to sin. If you find yourself angry over something, wait. Don't make a hasty decision. Wait for time and for perspective. I used to think that that verse, do not let the sun go down on your anger, meant we need to deal with it right now. Before I go to bed, we've got to handle this. And when Cheryl and I were first married, that was kind of our MO. If we had an argument or something, we did not go to bed until we dealt with it. Sometimes it was 4 o'clock in the morning. We sleep much better these days. Isn't it great how marriage just kind of relaxes you over time <laughs> 22 years later and, and if there's a, a you know an argument or something the reaction is you know I'm, I just don't have the energy let's just not argue okay good done it's over but I used to think we had to make it all work and get it taken care of before we went to bed not so not so when Paul says don't let the sun go down on your anger he's saying don't let anger seethe and fester until it boils over Don't cram it in. Don't shove it away. Don't let the sun go down. Yes, be measured. Yes, wait. Don't fly off the handle when you're angry. Think about it. Pray about it. But at the same time, don't let it rest and fester inside of you to bring about bitterness. Jesus took the time to prayerfully consider His response. But He didn't suppress His godly anger. Jesus was never passive-aggressive, nor was He just plain old-aggressive. He was prayerful in all things. Psalm 69, verse 9 reads, Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, John tells us in his gospel that the apostles recognized this verse to be about Jesus. In John chapter 2, I'll just read this to you, verse 13. John 2.13 tells us the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple, 
with the sheep and the oxen, he, he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as a testimony for your authority for doing these things? And Jesus said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The cleansing of the temple. The first time Jesus cleansed the temple, it made an impression on the apostles. And they remembered that verse, Zeal for your house will consume me. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You said the first time? You mean the first time He cleansed the temple? According to Scripture, Jesus cleansed the temple at least twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry, which we're told in John chapter 2. John gives us that illuminating picture. The synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only tell about the time he cleansed the temple at the end of his ministry. John places it at the beginning. Is it a conflict? No. It's two different cleansings that took place. He went into the temple, cleaned it out, went back up into the Galilee, on about his ministry. And in this last week, when he comes back down, he goes into the temple, I have no doubt to check it out. Has it remained clean? Apparently not. Apparently not. Think about it. Do you think these robbers, these money changers and these dove dealers and these pigeon peddlers, do you think they just accepted Jesus' rebuke in John chapter 2 and never went back to sell in the temple again? I think we know better. I can just see them sneaking in, can't you? The money changers, after Jesus, is he gone? Is he out of Jerusalem? Yeah, okay. And so maybe they sell a little bit on the temple steps. No Jesus. So they get up toward the doors of the temple. No Jesus. They move into the court of the Gentiles, but probably just on the fringes, you know, watching. Finally, hey, he's not coming back. No one's bothering us. And so they set up shop in all of their little places just like they were before. And Jesus has to clean the temple again. Gang, that's what sin does in our hearts. Just like the money changers in the temple. We come to Jesus for salvation. And we get cleaned out. And He washes us and we're pure and we're fresh before Him. But the money changers sneak back in. Or the pigeon peddlers. The sin begins to creep back in. We need to go back to Jesus for more cleaning. Not for more salvation. We have our salvation, but you know what we need? We need sanctification. We need continual cleansing to happen in our lives. Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. You've been saved. You know what you're doing right now? Sanctification. Sanctification. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 10.19, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way in which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, full in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us then hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Like the temple gang, we need to be cleaned out and we need to be cleaned out again. And so Lord, I want to pause and pray just for a moment that You will cleanse these temples, the temples of our bodies. And tonight, Father, sanctify our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus. Father, clean the temples. And Holy Spirit, we invite You to take up residence in the temple to keep us cleaned day in and day out in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 14. The blind and the lame came to Him in the temple and He healed them. So once He cleans it out, healing can take place. There's another hint to what sin can do. It can block healing. You get the sin cleaned out, you get the place pure, you have the Spirit there, and healing begins to take place. And we're told in verse 15, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that He had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David! They were thrilled. They were so happy. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not what it says. 
they became indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? He quoted Psalm 8 there. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he spent the night there. So this would now be a second night back, or a third night actually, back in Bethany. Two more things to see in the grace and truth of Jesus. He's already cleaned out the temple. Gang, notice how intentional he is in what he does. One week from the crucifixion, And he has the presence of mind to restore his father's house to a place of prayer. And then he has the presence of mind to sit there in the temple and heal the blind and the lame. Though he himself is about to be killed, he's healing people. Right and left, there in the temple. He readily healed the blind and the lame. That's the second thing to notice. He readily healed the blind and the lame. And I think Matthew inserts this as another reminder that Messiah had come. Remember Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 tells us the eyes of the blind will be opened, that the lame will leap like a deer. So Matthew reminds us of this. It, it happened. He's, just, he's reporting the facts, gang. But I believe he reports it here to show us, to remind us, Messiah had now come and was in the temple. But thirdly, third thing on our list now, Jesus received honor from the people. He received honor from the people. Well, no, duh, Rick. They, of course he was... Re- no, there's something important to note here. In receiving honor, in receiving worship from the people, Jesus elevated once again His divinity. He revealed yet again that He was God in the flesh. He didn't reject their worship. He didn't refuse their worship. He was not like the angel in Revelation 19 who told John, don't do that. Don't bow down before Me. You worship God. Don't worship Me. Jesus does the opposite. He receives their worship. He even defends their right to worship Him. Luke 19, verse 39, in Luke's version of what happened, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. That would have been cool. I believe they would have. First rock concert, right there. The stones... Right now, One of the things that upset Jesus' enemies so much was His increasing focus, His increasing claim to divinity. That He didn't silence those who would call Him God. Only God was supposed to receive worship. Only God was the acceptable one to praise and to adore. John 5, verse 18, the Jews we're told we're seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And it was blasphemy to the Jewish people. Mark chapter 26, verse 65. We're told here at the end of the week as Jesus stands before the high priest that the high priest would tear his robes and say, He has blasphemed! What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. Because it was blasphemy to make oneself equal with God. And Jesus did. I remember reading a book several years ago. I forget the the, uh, rabbi who was named in this book. But there was a particular rabbi who said, I love the teachings of Jesus. And the attitude of Jesus. And I even believe some of the miracles of Jesus may have happened. But I cannot go so far as to believe that He's God. That's where Jesus lost me. When He began to claim that He was God in the flesh. Deuteronomy 4.35 Moses said to Israel, To you it was shown that you might know the Lord. He is God, and there is no other beside Him. Isaiah 43.11 I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides Me. God the Father speaking, I'm the only Savior. There's not going to be another one. And yet in Matthew 18.11 Jesus says the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus owned the title of Savior. Emmanuel, God with us. And it was that claim that was so offensive to the Jewish leaders because they failed to recognize who He really was. The only reason Jesus should have and could have received the worship of people is that He truly was God. God among us. And I'll tell you something, my friends. Any other reason 
for following Jesus would, would be blasphemy. Any other reason, gang, you shouldn't follow Him. If you're following Jesus for any reason other than He is God. And I know good Christian people who love Jesus but go, I can't go so far as to call Him God. Son of God. Lesser in the Trinity. But, but equal with God. I, I can't go there. You know, if you can't go there, should I say this? Yeah. If you can't go there, I don't believe you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You're only a truly a follower of Jesus Christ if you follow Him for who He is and who He claimed to be. And He leaves no other option. He came as God. God in the flesh. God with us. Equal to the Spirit. Equal to the Father. Verse 18. Now in the morning, when He returned to the city, He became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, He came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And He said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the the, the, the fig tree withered. (laughs) Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Number four on our list here. Jesus railed harshly on a fruitless fig tree. Jesus railed harshly on a fruitless fig tree. It's one of the more curious things Jesus did. And again, Mark tells us that it happened overnight. That the one day they pass the fig tree and He curses it and they continue on their way. And then as they're coming back by later, the fig tree is withered from the root. And Peter sees and goes and says, Lord, that's the same tree you cursed. What a coincidence. (laughs) And they had to wonder, what is going on with this Jesus? I mean... He always had the presence of mind. He always seemed to know what he was doing. But to curse a little tree? Come on, man. That's just a little weird. What's going on here? We'll talk about that on Sunday. But we've got to leave some time to deal with the rest of this passage tonight. Verse 23. When he had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Mark tells us this question came immediately after Jesus drove out the fiscal frauds and the pigeon peddlers. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? They began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And he also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Number five. Jesus rightly handled the chief priests and the elders. Don't you love on a TV show or in a movie when you're watching the hero or the heroine and, and they're one step ahead of the bad guys? And you know the bad guys don't know that the hero's right around the corner. You know that Jack Bauer has his gun drawn and he's ready to go after him. And the bad guys have no idea what's happening. And I love that. That, that point for me, I'm right there with them. Like, yeah, they don't know. All right. I hate those shows where the bad guys are two steps ahead of the good guy. That bugs me. In this case, this really wasn't even a fair fight. Jesus wasn't just a few steps ahead of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests. He was about 4,000 years ahead of them. As a matter of fact, He was an eternity ahead of this Pharisaical debate squad. They come after Jesus and they start asking what authority He has and Jesus comes along with eternal skill and says, let me ask you a question. Now again, I, I point out the composure of Jesus. Going through all that He's already been through. The intensity of each day, he's composed. He's wise enough to say, that's a good question, by what authority? Let me me ask you a question. You answer my question, I'll answer your question. John's baptism, where did it come from? Heaven or earth? Did John just do it on his own? Or was he truly called by God to do it? Interesting. They either had to lie 
and say it was by heaven. They didn't believe that. They did not believe John was functioning with godly authority. So they either had to lie and said that they did, or they had to tell the truth and risk upsetting all the people who did believe John was from God. That John was about heavenly things. And so they're caught between a rock and a hard place, and they say, we'll take it under advisement. We don't know. We're going to claim the fifth on this one, Jesus. Let me tell you something. Religious leaders like that are not worth following. I read this uh, quote in the Diaspora Museum in Tel Aviv. I think I shared it with you a few months ago, but it's a good quote. A rabbi whose community does not disagree with him is not really a rabbi, but a rabbi who fears his community is not really a man. In other words, a teacher needs to teach truth and needs to be able to stand on the truth and be aware that it is truth that is being taught. I'm going to give you just my opinion. My opinion. Religious leaders, pastors, ministers, priests who aren't willing to stand firm in what they teach are not worth listening to. Now, I've told you before, you better test everything that I teach. And feel free to question me on anything you disagree with. I I had someone disagree with me just recently about it. It's been a great conversation. I showed him how wrong he was and we went on from there. (laughs) Sorry. I don't think that I'm right. But I'll tell you something. If I'm not sure that I'm teaching the truth, I had better just sit down and shut up. And if you have someone who's teaching the Word and who's wishy-washy, well, it could mean this, it could mean that, maybe it means that over there. There are so many different options of what it could really mean. You just make up your own mind. I don't think that kind of teacher is worth listening to. I really don't. I get excited when I hear someone teaching truth, literal truth from the Scripture and confident in what is being spoken. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying to you, know what you believe and know why you believe it. You're going to have a greater impact in the lives of people around you if you tell them truth that you know as opposed to skipping and dancing around something you're not sure of. Why do you believe what you believe? Boy, I've just been in that church all my life. What a lame answer. I believe that because that's what I was taught growing up. Know what you believe. And know why you believe it. And don't rest on somebody else to hold your faith. You hold your faith. Peter said, 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who, gives, who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. Know the Word and be ready to give response. Jude says in verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once handed down to all the saints. It's interesting, Jude, the brother of Jesus, was going to send a letter out talking about salvation. And as he sat down to write, the Holy Spirit said, No, I need you to challenge the people to contend for the faith. Not be contentious for the faith, but contend for the faith. That word contend in the book of Jude, it's epiagonizomai. Epiagonizomai. Agonizomai. Does that sound familiar to you? Agonize. That's where we get the word. Agonize over your faith. It doesn't mean that you're, you're worried or upset by it, but you agonize over knowing it. You pour yourself into it. You take the time to know the word and be sure of the word. Labor fervently in letting people know what you believe and why you believe. The chief priests and elders couldn't do it. One question from Jesus, and they were stumped and had no answer. So rather than answer, they just said, we don't know. Why didn't Jesus just tell them where His authority came from? Why not just say, alright, you're asking where my authority came from? It came from God. You happy? Why didn't Jesus tell them? I'll tell you why. They wouldn't have believed Him. It wouldn't have mattered. He could have made a very clear statement and they still wouldn't have bought it. There's an old saying that goes, there are none so blind as those who will not see. There are none so blind as those who will not see. But weren't the Pharisees and the chief priests supposed to be learned men? That was part of their problem. They were so focused on book learning without faith. Now i got to couple this with what I just said, and it's so important, gang. We need to know the Word. We need to be sure of what we believe. But hear that. Sure of what we believe. Not of what we think we know. And your study of the Word, 
And pouring over the Scriptures and understanding God's Word is not just about having the book smarts. The Pharisees had book smarts. What they didn't have was faith. And that's what was sorely lacking with these guys. If your study in the Word does not increase your faith, then you need to step back and pray and ask the Lord, why am I not growing as I read the Word here? It's not just about book smarts, gang. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, You, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. If these sacred writings, gang, are not received through faith, they will not bring you the wisdom that leads to salvation in Jesus. Faith is the key component. Now, to drive the point home, Jesus tells these Pharisees, these leaders, these elders, these chief priests, He tells them two revealing parables. The parable of the two sons and the parable of the landowner's son. Watch these. Verse 28. What do you think? He's putting this back in their lap. What do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and he went. The man came to the second and said the same thing and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father, they said? Will of his father. And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you. Now he's tying back to John. Remember his question? Where did the baptism of John come from? He ties back to that. He says, John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. I love this. Jesus is now calling them out for what they wouldn't own themselves. You didn't believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to... Believe him. <laughs> I got to share this with you. I was teaching this in youth ministry in Fairfax, Virginia, with our youth group, and we had a kid in there, a kid by the name of David, who suffered from Tourette syndrome. Tried teaching a youth group full of teenagers when one of them has Tourette's. It was quite interesting, especially the mornings when he forgot to take his medication. And there were certain words that David would just latch onto, and he would just say them out, just say them out. Prostitutes. I read this verse. The tax collectors and prostitutes. Prostitutes! Okay, okay, David. Thank you. The tax collectors and prostitutes. Prostitutes! Okay. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you. The tax collectors and prostitutes. Okay, okay. Thank you. I mean, he just, every time. And it was so embarrassing. How do you think the chief priest felt when Jesus said those people are going to get in ahead of you. The prostitutes. They're going to have access to the kingdom, guys, before you do. As offensive as as David continuing to blurt that out again and again in that class setting, I can't even imagine being one of the chief priests. And Jesus, that word comes out of his mouth defining a person who was the lowest of the low in society that was going to get into the kingdom of God before the Jewish leaders. Unheard of. Ridiculous. Offensive. But Jesus spoke truth as he called these guys out. He answers the John question that they refused to answer. He says, you didn't believe in John. That was your problem. And unbelief had been Israel's problem from the very beginning. Exodus 24, verse 7. Moses took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And you know they said that a number of times to the Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, we'll do as you say. We will be obedient. How many times did they disobey? Constantly. Well, in Jesus' parable, the first son who rejected the father's call only to repent and accept it is the Gentile. The second son is unbelieving Israel. But, but keep going. The second parable now ties right in with it. The parable of the landowner's son. Verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. If the chief priests were listening... If they were paying attention as Jesus opened up this new parable, they would have known exactly 
that God was the landowner and that Israel was the vineyard. Why would they know that? Keep your finger there and turn over to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5. Isaiah. It's right somewhere in the middle. Pass the Psalms to the right. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Interesting, if your Bible has headings, you might notice the heading right above chapter 5 of Isaiah, parable of the vineyard. Listen to this. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it, And then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Watch this, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. When Jesus, back in Matthew 21, begins to tell the parable of the landowner, he is adding on now to a parable well known in Israel. A parable given 700 years before by Isaiah. The parable of the landowner. Jesus now continues the story in verse 34 of chapter 21. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vineyard growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, but they did the same thing to them. Who are the slaves? Who are the slaves? Who do you think? The prophets. Right on. Slaves are the prophets that the Lord sent. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus will say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Acts chapter 7, verse 52, Stephen is given his great defense. And he says, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. It was well known in Israel, God had sent the prophets to Israel but they had killed them and beat them and driven them out. Verse 37. But afterward, He sent His Son to them, saying, They will respect My Son. But when the vine growers saw the Son, they, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill Him. And seize His inheritance. They took Him and threw Him out of the vineyard and killed Him. Within a week, as you know, The son was taken outside, thrown out of the vineyard, taken out of the city to the north where he was crucified on a cross just as the parable foretold. Verse 40, Jesus asked this question. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Jesus ends the parable with a question. He allows the chief priests to pronounce their own sentence. Verse 41. They said to him, He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief corner. This came about from the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. He's now quoting from, directly from, Psalm 118, the psalm that we looked at on Sunday, the psalm of triumph that describes not only the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, but also the crucifixion. Bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar, the psalm would say. 
And now Jesus is quoting from that, saying, The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. It came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. But the chief priests were blind as bats. Verse 43. Therefore, Jesus said, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Who are the people to whom the kingdom of God is given? Jesus said it's going to be taken from you, Jewish people. It's going to be given to another people. Who are those people? The Gentiles. Church. Those who accept Jesus, who believe without seeing. The word people there in the Greek is ethnos. The, the Hebrew... Uh, the Hebrew equivalent is goyim. I've shared before the word goy, even today, is still used kind of as a curse word among Jewish people, speaking of Gentiles. If you have a Jewish friend and he, and he looks at you and goes, <laughs> such a goy, you'll know what he's saying. He's cutting you down. Because it, that is a word used among Jewish people to speak of the Gentile outsiders. But the Gentile outsiders are the ones to whom the kingdom now is given. And Israel would not receive the kingdom. Not the way that had been offered. It had been offered for them to have the kingdom. And for the kingdom right then and there to spread out from Jerusalem if they had received and accepted Jesus for Israel to become the greatest nation on the face of the earth and all of the Jewish people to be saved through faith in God. But they rejected Him. And so the kingdom was taken out of their hands and given to another people. Isaiah 42 verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, God has said, to the Goyim. A light to the Gentiles. That's your role, Israel. It was supposed to be Jew first, and Gentile then through the light of Jewish evangelism, but it didn't happen. Romans 11.18, Paul said, Do not be arrogant toward the branches, that is Israel. But if you are arrogant, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. It was Jew first. The Jewish people rejected Jesus, and so it was handed then to the nations of the world, to the Gentiles, to the Goyim. Israel is not cast out. You know that. We've talked about that many times. This is not replacement theology, gang. Israel still will have opportunity. God is still going to bring a third through the fire. But Jesus is now calling out the intentions of the leaders. In these two parables, He very powerfully indicates that they are going to kill Him. His murder was already in their hearts. They had already been planning it, talking about it, discussing it among themselves. And when Jesus told these parables, it infuriated these Jewish leaders. Verse 45, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard His parables, they understood that He was speaking about them. When they sought to seize Him, they feared the people because they considered Him to be a prophet or the prophet. The intensity gang is mounting here. Jesus Jesus remains as cool as a summer fig. He is calm. He's collected. He is a confident son. And He's right on track for keeping His Father's will. There's one last thing I want you to see before we go tonight. and It's in verse 44. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The stone is clearly Jesus. He is the chief cornerstone, the stone that was rejected. And Jesus now says, The stone, whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, they will be scattered like dust. What is He saying here? I've heard this verse so often spiritualized for the Christian condition. You've got to be broken. You've got to be broken on the rock that is Jesus. And gang, if we take that verse and we translate it that way, we completely lose the breadth and the power of what Jesus is saying. Granted, we need to come to the Lord with humility. The idea, the concept of brokenness, that of repentance, is a very biblical concept, but that's not what Jesus is talking about right here. And I'm going to talk about this more on Sunday, but, but this idea, sometimes we, 
We have this way in the church of spiritualizing stuff and focusing still on ourselves, of still being selfish even though we're in Christ. I want to be a better Christian. I want to feel more Jesus. I want to have more of me and Him together and we sit in our little homes and in our little churches and do nothing in the world. If our faith is not moving us to action, to change lives, to save people, to care about others, to move and live in compassion, then our faith is still about us. We still need these temples cleaned out. Now I've got to be careful because I'm going to get ahead of myself. We'll talk about that on Sunday. But you might ask, okay Rick, so who falls on the stone and is broken? Who is Jesus talking about here? I'm going to read you one more passage from Isaiah. Just, just listen to this for a moment. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. Isaiah 8, 13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Then He shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. And a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem... Many, listen to this, many will stumble, stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken, they will even be snared and caught. Who falls on the stone that is Christ and is broken? It's Israel. It's not some Christian who needs to repent. When Jesus says whoever falls on this stone, whoever falls on this cornerstone will be broken, He's talking about the glory of Israel which fell on the stone and was broken to pieces. They stumbled over Jesus. They didn't see Jesus. And by A.D. 70, Israel was broken and was in pieces scattered throughout the world. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.23, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block or a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Less than 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion, Israel was broken. They are who Jesus was talking about. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, prophesied Messiah will be cut off. The phrase cut off meaning killed and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come... That is, the Romans will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Israel was broken on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Who then is the person on which the stone falls? Who is Jesus talking about in the last part of that verse? You remember King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, you Bible students? You know that in Daniel chapter 2 he had a a marvelous and haunting dream. As he slept in the night, he dreamed of a, of a magnificent statue. Head of gold, silver arms, bronze belly, iron legs, and feet made of a mixture of iron and clay. And as Nebuchadnezzar in his dream stood there admiring the great statue, which I have a feeling looked a lot like him, at least in the face, suddenly out of nowhere, a rock not cut out by human hands comes flying through space and smashes into that statue such that in the dream Nebuchadnezzar said it was like chaff he was so disturbed by this wonderful dream that instantly became a nightmare that he woke up in the morning and said call my my counselors call my wise men they got to tell me what, what the interpretation of my dream is so upset was Nebuchadnezzar and so sure was he that this dream had significant consequence to it. That he wouldn't tell anybody what the dream was. You guys tell me what the dream was and then interpret it and that way I'll know you're not just scamming me here. And no one could do it. Well, one of his guys said, well, there's, there's a guy who I know and can interpret some dreams, guy, guy named Daniel. Could you bring him in here? And they bring Daniel in. And Daniel interprets the dream. He talks about each aspect of that statue, describing four great nations beginning with Babylon that would follow. But then he says this, Daniel 2.44. 
The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. What Jesus is talking about when he says, He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, Israel, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust he is now talking about all of mankind who stands in rejection of Jesus as Lord the great nations of the world the superpowers in which we put so much faith and trust don't put your faith don't ever put your trust in the glory of man or what man can accomplish because like Nebuchadnezzar's statue it's going to be dust The rock is coming. The chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone that broke Israel. The chief cornerstone that will pulverize all the nations of the world that rebel against Jesus Christ as Lord and God. The kingdom is coming and with it the King. Our rock who is Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we follow Jesus step by step through this final week, leading up to His crucifixion, Lord, we pray that the truth of Your Word would be exposed to us and the grace of our Lord Jesus would be seen. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. And Jesus, we praise You because You are a graceful and gracious God. And we honor and worship You because You have chosen in love to speak truth to us. May we be people who receive Your truth and walk in and with Your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.